I believe nicotine is not addictive, yes. Mr. Johnston. Uh, Congressman, cigarettes and nicotine clearly do not meet the classic definitions of addiction. There is no intoxication. We'll, we'll take that as a no, and again, time is short. If you could just, I think each of you believe nicotine is not addictive. We just would like to have this for the record. I don't believe that nicotine or our products are addictive. I believe nicotine is not addictive. I believe that nicotine is not addictive. I believe that nicotine is not addictive. And I too believe that nicotine is not addictive. And based on careful examination of the scientific evidence, there are three overall conclusions to this report. First, cigarettes and other forms of tobacco are addicting. Second, nicotine is the drug in tobacco that causes addiction. And third, the pharmacologic and behavioral processes that determine tobacco addiction are similar to those that determine addiction to drugs such as heroin and cocaine. That first clip was from 1994, when the leaders of the country's largest tobacco companies testified before Congress. The second was Surgeon General C. Everett Koop announcing new research on nicotine addiction eight years earlier. The use of bad science allowed the tobacco industry to delay regulation and protect itself from lawsuits. In 1998, four years after the chieftains of tobacco denied that nicotine was addictive, the industry agreed to a settlement that would cost them $206 billion over 25 years and severely restrict its advertising, especially to kids. As the Indiana Youth Risk Behavior Survey notes, tobacco is the only product that kills when used as directed. Today, the story is about science scams. Scams where scientists intentionally falsified or simply made up data to support their position. Our collective lack of understanding about science has always been a problem. Most of us would struggle to not only understand pieces, but putting it all together is beyond our skill set. Scientists that do understand how this stuff works publish papers so they can share what they know and to help other scientists replicate the experiment. Those papers include citations to show how the work of others influenced the research. Now, where it gets tricky is when some citations are real, but a lot of others are tossed in just to make the paper seem more credible. Likewise, sometimes citations are left out entirely, and the author presents the ideas as their own. As T.S. Eliot once said, Good writers borrow. Great writers steal. Well, that may work for fiction, but it's not good science. Nevertheless, those papers can find their way into print, usually through vanity presses that skip over the peer review process and publish what they're paid to print. In 2009, Philip Davis, a graduate student at Cornell University, ran a scam to prove a point. He had received numerous invitations to be published in Bentham Science Journals, so he decided to submit a paper. With the help of a website that creates bogus scientific papers, he submitted the paper for what was supposed to be a peer-reviewed journal. Davis said that he and the other authors were affiliated with the Center for Research and Applied Phrenology, which, if you're a fan of acronyms, spells out C-R-A-P. Crap. 
Lo and behold, the paper was accepted, and the firm asked for $800 to cover publication fees. The money was to be sent to an address in the United Arab Emirates. Davis said to be fair, many papers Bentham published are peer-reviewed, but it appeared to him that the practice was inconsistent. These publishers participate in what's known as open access, a place where scientists can publish information that either did not survive peer review or were not yet ready for that process. I'd like to tell you the scientists are cleaning up their act, that scrutiny by peer-reviewed journals has increased, and that new safeguards are in place to catch research scams. I'd like to, but I can't. Twenty-four hours ago, I found out the person I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. A 2012 study, published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, analyzed 2,047 retracted papers in the biomedical and life sciences fields. The study reported misconduct was responsible for three-quarters of the retractions where the cause could be identified. Industry watchers say the number of new studies are increasing, and that suggests the number of frauds has likely increased as well. In 2016, the Canadian Broadcasting Systems program, The Nation, took a look at the problem through the eyes of three professionals whose job it is to expose scam science. Here's researcher Ivan Oransky and reporter Kelly Crow. It's been happening as long as scientists have been doing science. For decades, there have been people, one of, one of whom actually painted with a magic marker on a mouse in an elevator on the way up to give a presentation to make it look as though his results were actually what he wanted everybody to think they were. That was William Summerlin who colored his mouse with a marker. And he has lots of company in the rogues gallery of scientific misconduct. Here's Wang Woo Suk, the South Korean scientist who thrilled the world saying he'd cloned human embryonic cells. Except he didn't. He made it up. There's John Darcy, the Harvard cardiologist who can claim dozens of faked papers based on data from experiments he never did. Over here, UK doctor Malcolm Pierce claiming a world first by reversing a miscarriage, except the patient didn't exist. That's the guy who plagiarized the paper about plagiarism. And meet Dong Pyu Han, who faked a vaccine experiment by spiking his rabbit samples with human blood. And so when confronted, Han confessed, felt terrible about it, uh, but eventually um, you know, lost his job, 
long story short, is now serving a, an almost five-year uh, prison sentence because of his federal grant fraud. Sometimes, bad science is convicting evidence. It sent Robert Stinson to prison for 23 years for a crime he didn't commit. Here's Professor Keith Finley of the Wisconsin Innocence Project. The case of Robert Lee Stinson um, is a guy in Milwaukee who was convicted in the mid-1980s of a sexual assault and murder based on, almost entirely, on forensic odontology evidence. That's uh, dental evidence, bite mark evidence. The uh, forensic dentist, the odontologist, uh, opined that no one's teeth could have made those marks on the victim's body except Robert Lee Stinson. DNA testing, after Robert Lee Stinson had spent 23 years in prison, proved that he was not the person who killed that victim and left those bite marks, that it was actually somebody else, also identified by the DNA testing, who, when then confronted with the DNA results, confessed and explained how he had committed this particular crime. Bite mark, footprint, and tire track evidence has been under question for some time. For example, tire tracks and footprints can change as dirt dries or undergoes other natural changes. Skin around bite marks can swell or shrink after an attack or after death. Without being able to replicate the exact conditions at the time of the crime, it's nearly impossible to prove or disprove the facts of a case. You might think DNA would solve a lot of these problems, but Ruth Morgan, the director of the Center for Forensic Scientists at the University College of London, provided an example during a TED Talk. It might not surprise you if I told you that later tonight you might have left a hair, a fibre, maybe even your DNA on that seat after you've got up. But what if the person who sits on that seat next, they pick up that hair or that fibre? Ordinarily, that's not a problem. But what if they go off to commit a crime, they leave a trace of you at that crime scene, and you become the prime suspect? At this point, you might be thinking, isn't that exactly what forensic science is for? Isn't that what it does? Isn't that what we see on shows like CSI? The team follow the evidence, they identify the suspect, and then they close the case. Not all of us are going to commit a crime, but every single one of us could be accused of one. So imagine you're standing in the court and the expert is explaining to the judge how that hair, that fibre, how your DNA is cast iron proof of your guilt. But you know you're innocent, but you know it's you versus science. Now we know that there are lots of people out there who don't have to imagine this because it's happened. But the thing is, it is still happening. In 2015, the FBI did a study. They looked at 268 cases where hair evidence was used to incriminate a suspect. And what they found was that in 257 of those cases, erroneous statements were made. That's 96%. In 96% of the cases, the forensic evidence was misinterpreted. And we've seen a similar issue for other forensic evidence types in our studies in the UK. Forensic science has got a problem that technology alone can't fix. What we really need to know is that if we find your 
DNA on a weapon or gunshot residue on you. How did it get there? And when did it get there? And the issue is at the moment, we don't have the data that we need to be able to answer that question sufficiently. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Amy. And hi, Hi, True Crime Crime fans. fans. We're the co-hosts of She Goes by Jane. Every week, we'll be covering the story of a missing or unidentified woman in the United States. Stories you may have heard before. And ones whose stories didn't make it into the news. We've been covering these stories for a while. First in Amy's book of poetry, Doe. And then in Vanessa's documentary, She. But now we want to share them with you here on She Goes by Jane. And each week, we'll be joined by a special guest who will read a poem in honor of the women we talk about. Can we say who? We can say who. We'll be joined by actresses like Coco Jones and Gabrielle Ruiz. And musicians like Stephanie Quayle and Kelly Moneymaker, along with authors like Louise Penny and Catherine McKenzie. So check out She Goes by Jane wherever you get your podcasts, or check out Evergreen Podcasts and their true crime channel, Killer Podcasts. We can't wait to bring you these stories. Let's go from biology to meteorology and whether scientists can make it rain. Charlie Hatfield said he could make it rain. In fact, he had done so bringing 18 inches of rain to Los Angeles, or at least that was his claim. In 1915, San Diego found itself in a severe drought, so city officials called on Charlie. Charlie Hatfield said he could fill the Marina Reservoir within a year. Marina Reservoir, to be filled, held 15 billion gallons of water. It was only a third full, so Charlie had to be able to have enough rain and runoff to generate 10 billion gallons. And they all felt that for $10,000, that was a good deal. The first rain that Charlie felt that he had in hands began on about January 10th. And it rained fairly consistently, both inland and in San Diego, over the next three or four days. But on January 14th and 15th, it really began to pour. The heavy rains between the 14th and the 18th caused flooding in the San Diego River Valley, it caused flooding in the Otai River Valley, it caused some flooding in the Sweetwater River Valley, and it caused the lake behind the Otai Dam to become full. Many roads were washed out, many railroad lines were washed out with this first rain, but everybody felt that that was it because around the 19th the rain stopped. The rain started again on January 24th, but it wasn't severe and people weren't too concerned. But it continued, and it rained on the 25th, and it rained tremendous amounts on the 26th. And people throughout San Diego County began to get very concerned because they hadn't really had a major recovery. People were trying to figure out how to just stay alive during this. The people in the city of San Diego were isolated because roads leading out had been wiped out. The rain wiped out most of the railroad tracks. Over 200 bridges throughout San Diego County were destroyed or, or gone. The Lake Marina Dam, which was the focus for all of this rain, actually held up. So Charlie was successful. He filled Marina Dam. An estimated 20 people died from the flooding and resulting damage. And although Charlie had delivered, they wanted to hang him because it was too much rain. Some members of the San Diego Council felt Charlie was owed the $10,000, but lawsuits were being filed against the city for instigating the disaster. Listen again to Lynn Christensen, who told the story in a documentary for the San Diego County Parks Department. Some people were 
going to sue the city of San Diego for the damage that had happened to their crops and their livestock. And so through his attorney, when Charlie asked for his money, he was told that if he agreed to say that all the damage was his fault because he had brought this rain in, that the city fathers would pay him the $10,000. But Charlie and his lawyer were smart, and they knew that if he agreed to that, that he would be paying these people off for years to come. And so they said no. They would not claim that Charlie had caused these this damage to happen. And so city of San Diego never paid Charlie his $10,000. Did Charlie Hatfield make it rain? Probably not. Meteorologists said Hatfield arrived only when rain was already in the forecast. And because Hatfield claimed he'd caused rain more than 500 times, those who studied his history believe his real skill was in listening to weather forecasts. Things might have been different for San Diego if only it had asked John Keating about his miracle. H2NO is water without the wet. We start with only the purest, freshest water. Then we apply our secret dehydration technology to carefully remove the aqueous content. To use H2NO, simply measure out 8 ounces of cool, clean water. Add it to the H2NO. Shake for a few seconds and enjoy cool, clean, satisfying water ready to drink. Why struggle with the weight and inconvenience of water when you can take H2NO along? People get taken by a scam or con because they want to believe they can become richer, smarter, or more attractive to a partner. But because they were the mark, they never realized they were being scammed. They never saw it coming. What you can believe in is that a new episode of Scams and Cons is coming in two weeks. Thanks for listening. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects.